What's up, guys? It's your host, Brian Kaderna, and you are now listening to the Kaderna Podcast. In today's episode, I had the pleasure of speaking with Eric DeHaan on the world of influencers and social media's impact on pretty much everything. If you don't know who Eric is, he's a Los Angeles native and serial entrepreneur. He's the CEO and co-founder of Open Influence, which he started in 2013 and has since become a key authority in the influencer marketing space. Eric has successfully piloted Open Influence's global expansion throughout the US, Europe, and Asia. He's worked with over a thousand of the world's largest advertisers, including Disney, Google, Amazon, Facebook, Coca-Cola, Under Armour, just to name a few. His company has been recognized as one of Inc.'s 5,000 fastest growing companies in America for three straight years. Eric personally is on the Forbes 30 under 30 list and is an Inc. 30 under 30 honoree. So without further ado, please join me and Eric DeHaan as we cover everything from the psychological concerns over social media, how companies can market themselves in the modern world, to what China and Russia is doing to meddle here in the U.S. Is going to require work and time and sweat and toil. If money wasn't an issue, what would I be doing? Don't worry about it. You'll figure it out. Change is the only constant. The Kadena Podcast. Eric, welcome to the show. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's my pleasure. It's funny, you hear all this stuff now about influencers. And what exactly is that? I know that's that's kind of a realm that you deal with. Yeah, you know, um, so the sort of high level way we'll define an influencer is someone on social media uh, with above 10,000 followers, right? And, and of course, we can go lower than that. And then we start falling into the realm of nano influencers. And, you know, and, and but, but typically, that's sort of the rule of thumb. Um, and really, something just important to note is um, having influence, it, it's not about popularity or the size of your audience. It's really about trust and, and relevance, right? And, and, and where do, what does your audience trust you to talk about? What do they trust you to do? Um, you know, I could have, a, you know, 10 million followers and I could talk about, you know, uh, latest trends in, in computer hardware, but if my audience doesn't trust me, as a resource in that, I, I don't really have influence in that. Got it. Got it. And is this something that you foresaw one day, like kind of getting into this space or uh, it seems like a, a relatively novel concept that you have all these different influencers that people can pick from to really build out like a marketing campaign. Uh, were you trained for this or did you kind of just grow into the industry? Yeah. I mean, um, I, I really grew with the industry, right? Um, so when, when we started, it was actually before the word influencer was even coined. Um, and I had a startup prior that I was working on and we were looking for a way to market, um, you know, the app that we created. And my brother came up and said, you know, Hey, I, there's, there's some people, they have a following on social. They're not celebrities, but you know, there are people following them. Um, let's have them post and see what happens. And I was like, okay, great. Right. And so we had them post, we saw the downloads coming in for the app and we knew we were on to something. And then we had a lot of questions around just how scalable is this? Like what, what does the, is there a business here? Like, is this just kind of a novelty that we found or is there something bigger? And we spent a lot of time just thinking through it and we realized, well, you know, at the time you had the whole MCN industry, 
uh, which stands for multi-channel networks. They're essentially like mega agencies that represent a bunch of YouTubers. Um, and we said, well, YouTube is one platform and creating content on YouTube is actually really hard. Like the barrier to entry is pretty high. You have to, you know, have video production skills. You have to be comfortable creating longer form content. Um, and we're looking at like Twitter and Instagram, like, wow, the barrier to entry is so much lower. That means so many more people can be, you know, can become creators, can become influencers. Um, this industry is, it's got to be huge. There's no reason why this can't dwarf the MCN industry. Um, and that was sort of the bet we made. Um, and yeah, we, we were, you know, we we're probably one of the first, if not the first out there to start working um, with influencers. That's awesome. And so that started in 2013. Yep. That's when you kicked it off. Yep. And so what exactly is your company Open Influence? Do you go out and as like kind of an agent and find all of these potential influencers and then help them kind of explode onto the scene? Yeah. So, so the best way to think about us is think about us like a talent agency, but instead of representing the talent, we represent the advertiser. And instead of working with a handful of really big names, we work with the full spectrum of talent. And so, um, you know, we have a network of over a million influencers. We have an entire team of account managers and creatives and strategists um, that really help put together these plans and execute these plans for brands to help them identify the best influencers to work with um, and manage that process. And to do that, we, we've built a lot of proprietary tech um, that lets us analyze just all the influencers out there, um, where their influence lies, and really just help in that one matchmaking process of finding the right influencers for a given activation. And then two, um, just managing the whole process and the moving parts. Wow, that's really cool. I mean, when you think about it, it, it almost seems like the sky's the limit with how much exposure you can get through social media and all those avenues you were talking about. But one of, one of the things that comes to mind is like when I mentioned some of the clients you've worked with, and I think of Disney. So if you go out and you find one of these influencers where it's, okay, they're not a Disney employee, but there's someone that Disney thinks could really connect with their you know target market. I'd imagine there could be some liability there where it's how can you guarantee in a sense that what that kid or whoever that influencer is, is always going to say something that's in line with the Disney message <laughs> and they don't just go off, uh, you know, kind of go off the reserve one day. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's a, a, a big topic within my industry, right? It's comes down to brand safety and quality control. And, um, you know, you're, you're dealing with influencers, they're individuals, uh, they're people, right? And so a big part of that is, um, one, doing really solid vetting ahead of time, making sure that that influencer's content and what they produce aligns really well with the brand. And then when we're having them create specific content for the brand, um, being really clear in the brief and then reviewing that content before it goes live. So there, there, are, there are a whole set of checks and balances and processes we've developed just to make sure that we're adhering to that sort of level of quality control that our brands expect because it only takes one influencer to go off the rails to really just tarnish, um, you know, a, a campaign or, or a brand's perception. Sure. I mean, I, I 
you see it everywhere. And you saw it recently, you know, with our past president, Donald Trump, where he might retweet something, you know, that that was fine. And the message was fine. But then people look at whoever that guy was that he retweeted, and they find out that random person has some crazy history of God knows what. And before you know it, they kind of connect this to that to that. And then it's like, Oh, did you see what the president just said? And I mean, I feel like that has to be uh, something that you you spend a lot of time kind of protecting and cultivating. Yeah, that that that's exactly right, and that's a that's a really good analogy. Um, yeah, like like a, a brand will work with an influencer, and it'll be like one of eighty in a given campaign in a given month or what have you. And someone somewhere will dig that up and be, and, and say, you know, three years ago this influencer did this that was inappropriate or that, or they were accused of what what have you, and now all of a sudden create like a a PR crisis for the brand. And so a big part of what we do is like, okay, what are all the degrees of vetting that we can do up front? How do we make sure that um, if something does come up that we've missed, that we have processes in place so that we can quickly make sure it gets taken down from the influencer's account. And so like, there's just so much that just goes into the brand safety um, and, and that's just even talking about from a perception standpoint, there's a whole nother aspect where it's just comes out to fraud. Like how do we make sure the influencer has a real audience uh, and, and it's not, you know, a, a bunch of bots uh, that they're, that they're talking to. What is a bot? <laughs> you hear all about bots. Are they, they're a real thing, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I mean the, the simplest, you know, I, I guess the, the simplest sort of fake, follower would come from like a bot farm where essentially you'll have um, a bunch of fake accounts that are made to look real and, and you could typically identify them right like just by looking at them they're getting a lot more sophisticated though but you know it's like those accounts you click they're following five thousand people on instagram for example but they have three followers they have no content they have a profile image and some username that's just nonsensical um and you know, there are companies that essentially sell, uh, you know, services like fake likes, um, you know, uh, fake followers, and those are bots that are doing that. And so the idea would be influencers use that to bolster up, you know, their their vanity metrics, um, you know, and, and initially it was actually kind of a catalyst where, where a lot of influencers were doing that to, to bolster their sort of initial following, which made them see more popular and help them gain real followers from there. But, um, you know, now it's, it's definitely a red flag. Um, and, and, and something else to note, um, it's not as clear cut as, as it may seem because you have a lot of bots that will just follow influencers without the influencer, you know, asking them to, or participating in that, um, just because you have these follow for follow sort of, um, bots out there. That's interesting. It seems like it's all changing so quick. I mean, when, like when I was kind of coming up in the social media world, if you will, it was first, there was actually MySpace, if you remember that. And then before you know it, it was like Facebook kind of took over everything. But now with up and coming generations, it seems like you hear a lot about Snapchat and today TikTok seems to be everywhere. You know, it's like, what, what's next? Like, do you find it difficult in your business, your line of work to keep up with how quickly all of this is changing? Yeah, I mean, it it's changing so fast. And it's like, 
you gotta you it, it, it's almost brutal on how quickly the industry moves right like the within like a three-month time span you have some pretty significant changes and the thing too is um we're in a very fast growing industry and it's quickly fragmenting um into a bunch of different directions like so there's so many ways now to leverage creators and influencers there's so many platforms that are prevalent those platforms are launching like different features constantly in different methods so um you just have this sort of entropy that's happening and like this increased complexity that's happening um and, and you know and, and and part of that you know quite honestly i'm grateful for too because that that you know just means like you know, companies like us and us are, are more valuable to guide clients through all that because there's just so sure. much happening. Yeah, it's definitely a lot for for kind of like a small marketing team to get their hands around. Because, uh, you know, you think about it in a traditional business sense, even in my business, you know, you could spend a decade trying to create like a thousand clients. But yep. then you, you see a Snapchat and in just the span of a year, they could pick up a hundred million users. And the way that it can change so quickly, I imagine that, that, you know, your company, the open influence, it, correct me if I'm wrong, has to be a pretty young group of employees. Yeah. I, I mean, we, we've definitely aged up a little bit since we started. Um, but you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, we, you know, with, with Gen Z coming online and are coming of age and, and, um, that becoming a key focus for a lot of marketers now that Gen Z has some spending power um, and is influencing consumer trends. Um, you know, we we we're, we're definitely looking to, you know, e, 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 to, to our, our Gen Zers and our millennials look like you know old timers now compared to you know. And as a millennial myself, it's like, uh, you know, when, when we were the sort of we felt like we were the center of the universe six, seven years ago. And now it's like, huh, now, now there's some learning we have to do to understand the next generation. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild. It's a lot to keep up with. And uh, I had imagine that's what every, all your clients want to do. But I wanted to ask you a little bit about social media as a whole right now, because I know that you've spoken out to some extent on Facebook and other social media companies um, you, you said, and, and I quote that Facebook's been accused of failing to police conspiracies and lies about the safety of COVID vaccines. Mm-hmm. What will go into the oncoming, ongoing battle to combat misinformation stemming from agencies and anti-vax influencers? You, you know, what's, what's going to happen there? Because that's such a kind of touchy subject when you get into COVID and the anti-vax community. I don't know how big they are, but they definitely have a loud voice. And when you throw it on social media, it's, it's really hard to separate fact from fiction. Yep. And so what, I guess, what is your beef with Facebook? What should they do be doing better in that respect? Yeah. I, 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 I don't know if I necessarily call it a beef. I, I think they're in a really tough position as well because so much of this stuff is so new and there's, there's some really big questions, right? Like how much control should a platform have um, over speech versus, versus not right and like and and are they the right ones to determine um you know what speech you know like are, are they the right ones to, to to you know be the arbiters of, of what we can see and what we can't um or should government play a bigger role in that or at least set the rules for what what that can be and so there's a lot there i i think i think one of the 
the the sort of biggest themes with social media as well, aside from just Facebook, is you know those algorithms are all designed to keep us engaged, um, and the content that's most engaging tends to often be like you know the most shocking or most extreme or or what have you, and so um, you know it, it's definitely been this forcing function pushing. Um, you know, I, I think politically pushing um, more extreme agendas, more extreme views, because, you know, things things that kind of fall into the average, you know, or, or, or you know, don't really interest people that much. Right. There's a reason C-SPAN is boring and no one watches it. Right. It's not mm-hmm. it's not engaging. Um, and so those algorithms are really ranking. Um, yeah. Just more extreme content uh, across the political spectrum right, on both sides. And um, across different genres and, and topics. And so um, I, I think we're seeing that now, right? We're seeing this sort of clash between, um, you know, responsibly disseminating information and truth and social platforms trying to keep people engaged. And so, I mean, what's what maybe is is the answer there? If kind of from the outside looking in, if you could maybe give some critique. Um, you know, if you just look at the, the Facebook documents that came out by the whistleblower, uh, forgive me if I get the name wrong, Francis Haugen, I believe it was, um, that a lot of people have been talking about with an investigation from the Federal Trade Commission, um, possibly saying that Facebook violated a 2019 settlement with the agency. There is a lot of information in there that's eye-opening. I mean, one of the things was that the leaked documents revealed less than 5% of all hate speech on Facebook even gets deleted. Uh So like you said, I mean, Facebook wants to keep people in tune, as does any media outlet. And and it's not Facebook saying or endorsing any of these things. I think that's where it's so tricky with freedom of speech that, you know, it's like, are they a news outlet or are they not a news outlet? But when you've got hundreds of millions of people tuning in every day, how are you not a news outlet? I mean, I don't even know where the answer could could lie there. Yeah, and, and I and I think that's where, yeah, and and that's the challenge, right? Because I think they're in this position, um, where they're you know they're in in a lot of cases now. There's a lot they could be doing better, of course, but like in, in a lot of cases in general, it's they're in these situations where they're kind of screwed if they do and screwed if they don't, right? Um, if they start censoring certain speech, like they have to be really on top of what they censor and. Um, you know, new trends and content is emerging all the time. So being able to police that is crazy. Determining the rules for policing that is a whole undertaking in itself. Um, And yeah, I mean, it's definitely difficult. And looking at it like as a news outlet, I think, I mean, social platforms have traditionally just been seen as these sort of forums um, for free speech and less so, and and not seen as, you know, the same way a news outlet would, where they're the ones sharing that information proactively or creating and sharing, right? So it, it's tough. I, I don't know if, I don't think a social platform should be treated as a news outlet, but I do think that the algorithm should definitely be regulated because those algorithms are going to decide what content we see. Um, and that affects our, you know, our, our perception, that affects our political views, Um, that affects our, our view on reality. And so, you know, for example, a small tweak, like, you know, filtering up, um, negative comments, um, you know, will, will create a very different outcome 
as opposed to, you know, filtering up only positive comments from people we know, right? You can see a piece of content that's pretty extreme. Um, and the only comments you see at first are the people in your friend group that agree with that, right? And so even if the other hundred comments are against, you know, against whatever the message is in that post, if the main thing you see and you're more likely to see are the positive ones, that's going to start to shape your reality of how other people are interpreting that. And that's going to influence how you interpret that. Which is scary. And I guess that all comes back to influences. Uh, It can be a positive influence or a negative influence. Yep. um, I mean, maybe kind of a good segue in that same vein there is just recently all of the leaders of of pediatric health and, and pediatric psychiatry came out and said that children's mental health has now become a national emergency. And a lot of that, of course, is tied to social media and, you know, children developing a negative self-image, um, things of that nature. Is, is there any control of that? Or is that just things that the kids have dealt with for generations, just through kind of a new channel now, um, you know, whether they're comparing their work or whatever it might be to, to their peers? Um, any thoughts on like what social media should do to, to kind of help in that regard? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I, I think, you know, I, I think there's been a degree of that for a while pre-social, but, but social has definitely transformed this, right? Because one, um, we're always connected. Um, social is tied within our social fabric, right? Within our own friend groups, as opposed to, you know, previously, you know, you'd have these sort of archetypes or idealized types on TV, you know, on scripted shows and, you know, and, and, and the networks took a level of responsibility and in, in, in terms of, you know, how they approach things and what they did. And it wasn't always in your face, you know? And, and so like now we're living in this world where, um, you know, we're made to feel that, you know, within our own social networks, we're sort of somehow behind. Right. And I think that that's, what's weighing a lot. People portray their best lives on social. Um, you, you, you see, uh, the content that's most engaging and most popular getting filtered to the top. And so it really skews your reality. You think everyone is more popular. You think everyone is um, better looking and lives a more interesting lifestyle or is more accomplished, whatever that may be, right? Um, because it's filtering the sort of the best of the best or the, the most sort of extreme to the top. Um, and so that's, that's, you know, distorting our reality and our concept of sort of where we fit in to that, you know, within that social network. It definitely, I I think you hit the nail on the head there. And I had on, uh, probably about a month ago now, I had a cybersecurity expert, uh, Michael Abood on our show. And one of the things that he had mentioned is that these social media platforms are sophisticated enough where at this point in time, they should be able to have uh, essentially checks and balances that when someone logs in, you can tell to an extent who that person is. So that if a 10 year old grabs, you know, their mom's phone so that they can go on TikTok or Instagram and start looking at God knows what is the whole world's exposed to them, that those programs can identify soon enough, hey, this isn't, you know, the 52 year old mom, this is a, a child now. Uh, yep. Has there been developments in that or is that all still just kind of thought? 
I mean, I think from a technology standpoint, um, you know, the capabilities are definitely there. I, I think it comes down to incentives as well, right? Like, uh, you know, out of all the things these companies can be focused on, um, you know, so, so like focusing on teen health, for example, or what have you, like, you know, it, it's almost like a box to check to show responsibility, but I, I don't know how important it is, right? Because ultimately, um, you know, it kind of, I, I think part of creating that sort of feeling of inadequacy or what have you is, is part of the reason people go on, right? Like the, the beauty industry played from that playbook for years where it was all about making women feel like they're missing something, right? To entice them to go buy these, these cosmetics products, right? And so, um, you know, it, it, if you're a user that's fully content and happy with, you know, with, with everything happening, like you're, you're not going to be that incentivized to go spend time, you know, uh, on social, spend as much time, I would say on it. So, yeah, I, I, I think it's more of an incentive issue than a technology issue. I'd agree that, um, you know, especially with advances in AI over the past, you know, five to six years, um, and how commercially available it's become, uh, there's a lot you can do and a lot you can infer and detect and and use to, um, you know, protect users. Got it. And, and I might be a bit naive to this, but when you see a lot of the, the social media CEOs, the Zuckerbergs get up and testify in front of Congress like they've done, it seems like it's happened a number of times over the past five years or so. A lot of what I hear on the news is all about, you know, privacy, protecting client data and information, user data, not abusing it. Uh, has there been much so far uh, in respect to kind of this unchecked influence that, that people can have? Um, you know, I whenever I watch those, I, I always get kind of frustrated because mainly at, at, at the, you know, the people in Congress, because they're just asking the, the wrong questions. They're mainly grandstanding to express their political views. Like it, it's not, they're often not really getting to the heart of the issue. So like, for example, the whole issue around Facebook and privacy, like the privacy is not really from Facebook standpoint, to me, it's not a main concern. You're, you're putting yourself out there on social, right? Like that you're putting that information out there. So, you know, it, there, there are a lot bigger concerns that I have with it, right? Like, how are you swaying public opinion with changes in algorithm that we we're talking about earlier? That's a bigger concern. Um, from a, a monopoly standpoint, um, you know, that sort of privacy um, positioning, right, has led a lot of social platforms to close off data sharing with advertisers, which as a consumer, you might be saying, oh, that's great. Like, I don't want my data being shared. And, and you know, there's truth to that to an extent. Um, but there's also another approach of, well, this also is consolidating power within the ad industry. Um, so, you know, if, if only, you know, uh, a handful of these tech companies have access to that information and they're able to use that, they could outmaneuver and outcompete um, a, a lot of other, you know, a lot of other businesses within, you know, the ad industry and within commerce. Um, and so now you're really just consolidating a lot of power, especially with everything moving online and have moved online. 
um, you know, in, in commerce online, it's like you're consolidating a lot of power. You're consolidating information sources, like with all the publishers and news outlets. You're consolidating commerce um, with social driving a lot of e-commerce purchases. So, so you know, it, it was really in my mind the wrong conversations to be had in terms of what the risks are. Yeah, I, I agree with that because I've I've tuned in here and there to a few of those hearings and. Um... It's almost some of them. I hate to say it. It's almost laughable that it's like, hey, you've got one of the greatest CEOs, one of the most powerful people in the world, such as Mark Zuckerberg or Bezos up there, and, and then the questions that they throw at him are like, what are you even? What are you asking here? Like, you, you, we finally got the person here that we want to kind of investigate a bit, and they just kind of go in a totally different direction. It seems. Yeah, but that's right. That's, I guess that's a part of our system. <laughs> Yeah, and like I, I like watching um, Bezos and Zuckerberg, and I was just like, oh my god, I could only imagine what they're thinking. Like these, these questions being lobbed at them are so idiotic and show no yeah. understanding <laughs> of what it is. And yet you have like the brightest minds of our time, you know, sitting there being barraged with really dumb questions by people that have no idea what they're yeah. talking about. Yeah, it was like the one congressman that was asking Zuckerberg like uh, about emails and how a message goes from one to another. And he's like, am I here to explain like how email works? Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my gosh. <laughs> yeah. But one of the things I wanted to bring up with, with influence that I've always kind of been intrigued by when you see so much going on in international affairs right now, um, you just can't hide from it. What, what Russia's doing, meddling here in America, what China's doing, you know, as they're become, you know, the other superpower across America. I actually watched a video. I don't know if you ever heard of this a while back, but it was uh, a KGB defector, uh, Yuri Bezmenov, I believe the name was. I don't know if you ever saw that. Mm -mm. But um, it's a, a great little video. It was actually an interview that was done in 1984. Uh, if you ever look up on YouTube, I think there's a clip even called Sub Subversion of Press or Subversion of Pre Free Press, excuse me. And um, it's really interesting because they talk about when they were with the KGB, when it was the Soviet Union, their goal was not so much just spying or espionage, but the real goal was influence and, and looking over like a 15 or 20 year time frame, because that's how long they felt it would take to kind of re-educate a generation to a new ideology. And so that then when they would come over here, they would try and influence, whether it was academia or through movies or media or whatever it might be, it kind of how to question, you know, imperialism in the American mindset. And now when you see social media where everybody gets a voice, everybody can say anything that they want and reach an enormous audience that's almost unlimited, it just seems almost like too prime a territory for some of these kind of nefarious actors to come in. And it's like, how, how can you stop that? Like, that negative influence, if they want to get out there, is almost inevitable. Yeah, I, 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 and and I, and I think you bring up something really interesting, going back to the '80s, right? Like, I mean, a lot of these sort of subversion and 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 you know disinformation, um, you know, sort of you know tactics and propaganda. I, I think the Cold War played a really big part in that, right? Because there was a lot of proxy wars that were happening in these other countries. And it was really a war for influence and ideology, um, you know, swaying between, 
capitalism and communism and um you know and and, and the russians were you know and, and the ussr you know were spy masters um and so you've you've had a lot of these tactics being developed and yeah i mean you fast forward to today um it's a perfect environment right ideas flow freely um with just the right push in the right place you can send something viral um if you just know what to do and it's not a matter of you know you don't need to spend hundreds of millions of dollars to do it or wait years you can get that idea out there straight away and at the same time you also have a public that's getting used to not delving into information there's so much information out there that we outsource you know our sort of world view to people we trust and 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 they help shape it right um and so um it's really this environment that's primed to just push out these high level talking points and almost treat information and truth a lot more uh a lot more tribally than 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 what it actually is right it's i i think in a lot of cases a lot of people aren't looking for the pursuit of truth they're they're looking to cheer on ideas like their sports teams yeah and i think that's we're on the same wavelength there and i think that's where everybody has kind of a viewer or listener bias where now there's so much out there i always say you know there's there's a ton of information but there's not always a lot of wisdom and you can kind of pick and choose what you do want to listen to or what news channel you want to, it kind of already agrees with your, your, your kind of thought on life. Um, but I think that's where people who are like, just, I don't want to hear the Fox news. I don't want to hear the, the CNBC. I just want to hear what actually happened. Um, that's where you're seeing some of these podcasts and more of these independent channels that are starting to grow a following where, it's kind of here's here's what happened. Here are the facts, and it's maybe not so distorted with the major news channels or outlets that we already just assume. Oh, they're going to call it the conservative way, and those guys are going to call it the liberal way. Um, do you think that that's really the future? That those big bigger outlets kind of go away, and you have more of these influencer types? I, I mean, I, I think I think right now it's the information landscape is getting extremely fragmented. Um, I, I do think we're going to see a, a sort of counter movement around independent trusted news. I, I think people crave that. I mean, I, regardless of like where you sit on the political aisle or on the, on the political spectrum, um, everything's getting more extreme. I mean, the democratic party has gone a lot more extreme. The Republican party has gone a lot more extreme um, everything is somehow politicized and put through political lenses. Like the people aren't looking at things through a lens of how do we get to the bottom of this and what's the truth. And what, what I found oftentimes is like, you know, you could have a discussion with someone or a group of people. And if you use certain words that have been politicized, all of a sudden it becomes this sort of tribal dynamic of like this debate of people just yelling at each other. But what you find is like, you know, if you kind of avoid that and you you just approach the topic, um, you know, from an objective lens, like I, I think you'll find like people tend to agree a lot more than disagree on a lot of things. And people will say, yeah, that makes sense. So, so there's definitely I, I think there's definitely that need. I think people are tired of feeling like they're in the middle of the spin cycle. Mm -hmm. It's. It's true. And that's, um, I just, I don't know what, what, 
the changes because you I, I, you have to imagine and you see some of the statistics that the viewership of your major news channels has gone has just plummeted since yep. you know the rise of social media and everything else and looking at everything through your mobile phone but I don't know if it's been enough maybe to kind of change it or if they're like, you know what, we'll just kind of find our base. We'll find our tribe, like you said, and then at least we have a core audience that we can guarantee. Uh, I don't know if that's kind of what, what the solution has been for a lot of these, uh, you know, major news channels. Yeah. I mean, I mean, ultimately they're a business, right. And they're correct. They're now competing in a noisy landscape. And so it's not enough just to give facts. They have to entertain. And it's like any business, right? You have your core customer base that you really service um, and, you know, you're loyal to them and you're going to make sure you're giving them what they want to hear. Um, you know, if, you know, it, it doesn't really matter, uh, you know, it, it, what, what the truth is a lot of the time. But, but I do think there is, there is a demand being stirred up where people are going to start looking and saying, okay, okay, for news. I, I want the objective. I want the middle of the road. Like I, you know, um, and so, yeah, I think a lot of the news channels are just following consumers and we're in the middle of this sort of feedback loop that's just making everything more extreme. And, and it's the same mechanism too, that on social, right? Ultimately social algorithms are set up because there's so much information out there and they have to decide what information they're going to show you. And what they do is show you the information that you're most likely to enjoy or stay engaged with so you're staying on there longer it's exactly the same mechanism that all the companies out there in the information landscape are using you know if it's netflix they're trying to get you to stay on there and watch more so you don't cancel your subscription right same with hulu if it's fox news they want you to make sure you're watching it more because that means that they can go to advertisers and sell more ads um it's all, it's all the same model yeah it all comes back to the money <laughs> yeah and so when you work with, with these big fortune five, fortune 500 companies, and, uh, you're trying to find, I guess you're trying to pair up like the right influencer with them. Uh, is it really looking at just kind of how many followers these guys have? Like, is that the ultimate value where you could say, Hey, this guy has a hundred thousand Instagram followers. He costs X where that guy only has 25,000. So he costs Y irregardless of the reputation or who the people are or kind of what what they've done in life is that really like what we're all concerned about is kind of just the follower base um no it's like so like some brands do look at that mainly but it's not what we advise clients on like it's it's all about trust right so like and and, and we're seeing it right in the market um your micro influencers you know they're smaller than the big names but they perform better um, you know, in, in many cases, um, because they just have more trust and like, they have a better connection, right? They have better rapport. They're more focused. Um, they just have better trust within their audience. And so it, it's really all about trust and relevance in this industry. Um, and so like, you know, just looking at impressions, like you're chasing vanity metrics. So like as a brand, yeah, we can go and work with an influencer that will show, you know, you know, that will reach 10 million people, no problem. But are those people going to be receptive to the message? Are they even the right audience, right? Um, you know, are they old enough? Are they, you know, if, if it's a product that is gender specific, you know, are they the right gender or, or you know, do they live the right lifestyle, right income, level, what, what, whatever that is, right? 
Um, that's one part. And then two are like, are they interested in it? So um, you, you just, you just have to be really mindful of that. And so like trust is everything. You're way better off um, optimizing for trust than you are for, for followers. Followers is just a vanity metric. Okay. And that these influencers, is it, it like uh, kind of like the old school way where with you, with an actor, you know, they have an agent that goes out and lands them a commercial. Are you dealing with agents or are these like influencers that are, you know, a 17 year old kid that's filming in his backyard doing backflips or whatever? Um, like what is, is, is there like a formal business around this yet? Or is it still very just kind of open and changing? Um, it's both. Um, there, there, there are a lot of influencers that are represented. Um, they tend to be like the bigger names and in the sort of mid tail, like hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, there are a ton that are independent. And so like the smaller you go, the more likely they are to be independent because it just doesn't make sense for an agent or a manager to spend time managing them. Um, like the juice is just not worth the squeeze on that um, from a management perspective. Um, but yeah, I mean, the industry has grown up a lot. Like it was really the wild, wild west, you know, even just up to a few years ago and it's really streamlined. You've, you've had sort of consensus around like market rates. There's a flow to doing things. I remember when we started, we, we developed our influencer contracts from scratch and then down the road, like law, law firms that were starting to get asked about influencer marketing were reaching out to us for our contracts and for guidance. And so it was, it was very funny that we were advising all these quote unquote, like top entertainment firms on what the contracts needed to look like and why. Um, and I was like, sh you know, shouldn't we be paying you for this instead of, <laughs> instead of telling you what, you know, what to do, but like that, that's how new of an industry it was. So, um, you know, th th there's been a streamlining in terms of an understanding in terms of like, process and how to go about it and in terms of metrics and and yeah it, it, it's definitely formalized quite a lot yeah i bet yeah it's, it's grown quickly there's no doubt about that and eric one of the real things i wanted to ask you because i know we have a lot of entrepreneurs that are certainly listening to the show you've created a, a very effective app in a space that seems to be exploding so that's kind of like the perfect one-two punch, you know, that every entrepreneur or startup looks for. What was maybe one of the hardest things that you ran into or some of the hurdles you had to jump, you know, as you were building out uh, Open Influence? Yeah, I, I mean, you know, I, I started the business um, with a few, with my brother and a couple of co-founders, you know, and it was right out of college. Um, and so I, you know, part of it was just like general learning. Like, I think regardless of like what industry we would have been in, um, you know, you, you, when you're learning stuff for the first time and you're seeing stuff for the first time, you don't really have a frame of reference. So, you know, um, what I found is like whenever it was a new industry. And so whenever I would talk to people from the, you know, apparel industry, they'd have one way of looking at the business. When I talked to people with the entertainment industry, they'd have, they'd have another way of looking at it. And so what was really interesting going through that is I went through with this blank canvas um, and, and um, on one part, it was a little taxing because you spend a lot of time thinking through problems that others, you know, have solved years ago, like just whether as an organization or and you come across those solutions, you're like, Hey, this is how it's done. Um, but the benefit is when you're charting something new, 
Um, you're not, you're not putting any sort of baggage or bias from old ways of doing things or ways others have done things. And so you really develop it from the ground up. So, so, um, th- there's just a lot of learning there. I think, I mean, you know, some, some of the, the biggest things were just understanding what the dynamic would be ultimately in the industry, um, what the winning strategy would be and, um, you know, understanding how the market would develop and, and just constantly thinking and worrying and working through that. Um, and then from an entrepreneurial lens, um, you know, we were pretty bootstrapped in how we grew the business. Um, we, we didn't raise much money. And so just managing cash and managing a, a startup that's, um, you know, has been profitable and um, managing it lean and, and um, you know, is a, is a very, you know, different experience than going out there and raising a bunch of cash um, and just, and just go, go, go. And so I think um, I, I'm very fortunate that we, we decided to go that route and I had that experience because they definitely think it's made me a better entrepreneur um, because you're, you're, you're focusing on what actually moves the needle in the business. Um, and, and, you know, you, you really have to, learn how to weigh decisions because you only, you have, you have a, a far more finite set of resources. It's interesting. Cause you think, I mean, you're out of LA, you always hear California, at least this is our interpretation on the East coast is okay. You, you got this good idea for this app or this new piece of technology that you're going to go get some venture capital money and then someday sell it to a private equity firm or maybe explode and go public or something. So is it like that? Like, were you, did you really have a need for capital or is this something you, your brother and your friends were able to kind of uh, grow organically and not need that huge injection of money? Yeah. So, so um, when I was in college, um, the app I created prior, um, you know, we, we raised a little bit of money um, and, 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 you know, mainly friends and family um, and uh, you know, it was like this sort of moonshot idea of like, okay, we're going to build this big app once it gets a few million users. Great. But like, you know, it, 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 it we, we had a lot of challenges. And so I went into this with a lot of fear of not repeating that mistake. And it was also um, following, you know, the recession and everything. So I think that definitely weighed in a little bit to at least my mentality. Um, would say like, whatever I do has to be sustainable and a real business. And so when we started this, we didn't raise any money at first. We, we bootstrapped it. We got the business to doing like a million to million and a half a year before we raised any money. And so all the money that we brought on was really growth money. It wasn't to get us to a proof of concept or wasn't, you know, based on an idea. It was literally like more networking capital of, you know, shit, if I can, you know, uh, you know, buy some of these computers and hire a couple of people here, then I could fulfill this contract that this client's coming to us with. Interesting. So all that, the revenue that you were just referencing earlier on, that was coming from companies who would come to you and say, Hey, we're kind of subcontracting to you as like a marketing arm. That's uh, right. To get into this influencing space. Yeah, that, that, that's right. That's right. And so, and, and I think the benefit from an entrepreneurial side of, of going that way has been, um, you know, it's it just been about listening to customers and what, what they need and addressing that. And was there a tipping point of sorts? I mean, you see a startup company and then before you know it, you're working with a Coca-Cola or an Under Armour 
you know, how do you get in front of them? Like what happened between startup and playing kind of with the big boys, if you will? Yeah. I, I mean, there was probably like a few months, a few months of us working on some smaller brands. Um, and, you know, one of the, one of the brands, like one of the first large brands at the time that we won was American apparel and we, we crushed it for them on their social um, with a very small budget. And that was such a great case study and it opened up a lot of doors, um, you know, in, in a lot of meetings. And so I was just, you know, on the phone, nonstop sending emails left and right, just really working just getting in front of people, um, and, and, you know, really pitching them on this concept of influencer marketing. Um, and how it worked. And so a lot of it was education, but it was super exciting. And so it was a really great way to get the business built and get it going. Got it. That's quite a story. And, and maybe to kind of close out here, looking forward, um, I know some of the things you hear about it all the time is whether it's companies or, uh, you know, the NFL could be anything. You're just hearing about diversity and inclusion again and again and again. Mm-hmm. As we look into 2022, what are some of the big things that may be one or it may not be? What are some of the things that you're trying to bring to the table, you know, for your clients as you kind of match them up with the best influencers and send out a message? Yeah. I mean, the biggest thing. Um, so yeah, I mean, diversity and inclusion is key. And I think there have been many brands that have been fantastic when it came to diversity and inclusion prior to the 2020. And then last year, um, with everything that happened with, with um, George Floyd and, um, you know, a lot of brands became very conscious of it, especially from a marketing standpoint. You know, I think, I think from, a, from a personnel and HR and hiring standpoint, brands have been mindful of it. And, and, but from a marketing standpoint, um, representation became a, a really important topic for brands. And brands were not only receptive, to us um, making sure that there was a healthy, um, you know, healthy representation from a diversity and inclusion standpoint, but they were driving that. Um, and, so, and so that was sort of the big thing. I think, I think this year, um, you know, the sort of big focus for brands, one, what's important I should say is that they continue with the diversity and inclusion efforts, which I think, I think they will. Um, but I think it's important that they, they do continue and they don't lose sight of that. Um, but the, the thing that's big for brands right now is just continuing to double down on TikTok. Um, social commerce is really big for a lot of advertisers. And it's, it's a big transformation to how things are bought. Um, and as part of that, like live shopping is, is interesting. I, I don't think all advertisers are really on the live shopping train right now but uh you know I, it, it's kind of out of place where, where they're dabbling in it but the bigger thing is what just is so live shopping what is so it? so yeah you can um there it takes a few different forms but essentially it's an influencer or someone um just doing a live event where you could tune in and they're just talking about products so um you know they're they're reviewing or unboxing something live um and so think about like qvc on social Okay. That's interesting. And do you think one of the last questions I had for you, because this has always intrigued me, do you think these major companies are the ones that are kind of driving the change 
with with a new message they're coming up with a new concept or, or ideology however you want to phrase it or are they more reactionary that they're looking at this is what the universe looks like we need to pivot and start looking like them you know it it always seems kind of like this give and take and it's like where does that bit of influence like where does it start does it start from that individual or does it start from that big company or that organization um i i think the direct-to-consumer brands are leading the way to be quite honest like they're they're the ones who are driving most of the growth um you know these are like the small internet-based companies um and the big companies are following suit and so i i i think the, the big companies have been fairly agile in following the trends and getting in front of Gen Z and, and it, but like, yeah, I think the direct to consumer brands are really leading it. And, and I think it, it's mainly because of nothing else that to cut through the noise as a new company, you have to, you have to be pretty spot on into what the market's looking for. And so those are the yeah. companies that are emerging. It, that's a great point that you made too. I think you see that in any industry where it's like the, the innovators are the little guys or the new guys. And you, you just, for instance, you see like all the, uh, the sparkling alcohols or whatever they are that like yep. the white claw or one of those would be, it's like, it's something you never heard of. And everyone's like, Oh, this is so good. And then six months later, a year later, well, Budweiser and Coors Light and, yep. and the big players all of a sudden want to come out with their version of it. And it's like, wow, you're a little late to the game there. It, it's just surprising that these armies of that a company employees don't come up with those ideas, that it kind of comes from the hidden cracks in society. Yeah. I mean, they're not incentivized to really either. Like a lot of the time, I mean, just, you know, it, it's hard as a company to go if you're established and to go and say, Oh, let's go try something completely new and put resources towards something new where those same resources will get you a, a, bigger initial outcome and more, you know, uh, de-risked outcome. Right. And so it's like, okay, if we have a $20 million to spend, um, you know, we're better off spending it promoting the tried and true product that we know will generate sales than investing it into something new that most likely won't pan out, but it might be great. Yeah. Yeah. Good point. I mean, I could, we could dive down a rabbit hole with all these topics all day. I find them so fascinating because it all is all different innovation that's happening, like at the speed of light. But um, yeah, I know you're a busy guy and I appreciate your time, Eric. Is there anything else that you think the listeners out there need to know about this industry and what you're doing? Um, you know, no, I mean, I, I, I think that, I, I think the biggest message that I just want to emphasize is around trust. Like with anything influencer marketing, focus on trust, not popularity. Trust, not popularity. That's, I think that's key. And I think that's what, uh, you know, you can see kind of in any, any industry, I believe it transcends is that when somebody has that belief in something and you know, it's there, you want to trust them. You know, I've watched some YouTube channels on like mechanics and car fanatics and it's, you watch them and you're like, I don't think this guy cares if 10 people are watching or a million, like they're yep. just so into the, the engine of this car. And I, I'd imagine that those are the ones that really become influencers. Yep. That's right. Cool. Well, Eric, thanks again so much for being on the show. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, you just listened to another episode of the Kaderna podcast. I'm your host, Brian Kaderna. 
We had the pleasure of speaking with Eric DeHaan today about his company, Open Influence. Go check it out and uh, we'll see you next week. Take care. This podcast is intended for the general public and for informational purposes only. The show does not provide any recommendations or investment advice regarding any specific account type, service, strategy, or product, or to otherwise act in any fiduciary or other capacity. Please contact a financial professional for guidance and information that is specific to your situation. Brian Kaderna does not provide tax or legal advice. Please contact your accountant or legal advisor to discuss your situation. Guest speakers and their firms are not affiliated with or endorsed by Park Avenue Securities, Guardian, or Kaderna Financial Team, and opinions stated are their own. All investments contain risk and may lose value. Past performance is not guarantee of future results. References to specific securities, asset classes, and financial markets are for illustrative purposes only and do not constitute a solicitation, offer, or recommendation to purchase or sell a security. Brian Kaderna is a registered representative and financial advisor of Park Avenue Securities, LLC, PAS, OSJ, 300 Broadacres Drive, Suite 175, Bloomfield, New Jersey, 07003. Phone number 973-244-4420. Securities products and advisory services offered through PAS, member FINRA, SIPC. Financial representative of the Guardian Life Insurance Company of America, Guardian, New York, New York. PAS is a wholly owned subsidiary of Guardian. Kaderna Financial Team is not an affiliate or subsidiary of PAS or Guardian. California Insurance License Number 0K04194. Approval number 2021-130764. Expiration 12-2023.